This is the 20 Minutes to Clarity podcast with Jason Noble. Advisory services offered through Prime Capital Investment Advisors, LLC, PCIA, a federally registered investment advisor, Overland Park, Kansas. The following or preceding commentaries and responses are the opinions of Jason Noble and his guests and are not necessarily the opinions of PCIA and are for informational and educational purposes only and are not and should not be considered investment advice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. No guarantees expressed or implied. Welcome to 20 Minutes of Clarity. I'm your host, Jason Noble. Our podcast format is simple. We have intimate one-on-one real conversations with incredible people who share their insider details about some of the wealth-creating experience that they had increasing their net worth and relatable pieces of their life stories that you won't hear anywhere else. This podcast will have you tuning in regularly to learn more about the inspiring people who are right here with you within your Clarity Connect. It's my pleasure to introduce Jeremy Hild. He's a chartered financial analyst and is currently responsible for Bow Rivers Capital's registered asset management business, including the management of the Bow River Capital Evergreen Fund. Now, prior to joining Bow River Capital in 2019, he was a director and research and chief investment Officer of Alps Advisors, a Denver-based asset manager that specializes in registered fund vehicles focused on real estate and alternative investments. Mr. Held began his career at Alps in 1996 and helped to lead a variety of business initiatives over two decades, including the launch of the firm's asset management business in 2007. As CIO, Mr. Held was in, uh, was in charge of managing the selection and oversight of over 44 registered investment companies and more than $20 billion in assets under management. He graduated from the University of Colorado with a degree in international business. He's a CFA charter holder, a member of the CFA Society of Denver, and also Jeremy's on the board of principal of Real Estate Income Fund and Habitat for Humanity of Metro Denver. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Jason, for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's great. It's great to have you on. It's a pleasure working with you and Bow River. Uh, I want to start off by asking you, what would you say makes you who you are as a person and as a professional? Yeah, no, thanks, Jason. You know, I, I, I've thought about this a lot. And, and you know, what's interesting is I think the most important thing in life, and I tell this to my kids all the time, is curiosity. You, you got to be curious about the world that, that that you live in, and that's probably the thing that's defined me the most over my 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 whole life, you know, both personally and professionally. And there's an interesting thing about curiosity because you know once you once you become curious about the world that you live in, it sort of leads to other things. And as I think about it, you know, you're curious, you want to explore the world, you want to solve problems, and that that's a humbling experience. And what I found is sort of curiosity leads to humility if you do it right because, you know, you realize there's so much out there to learn and and you realize you have to put the work in to, to really learn about these things that you're curious about. Um, that by itself can be a somewhat daunting process because you say, wow, there's so much out there that I want to learn. It's there, There's so much information. How do I get it? And And that's where I think being optimistic is so important too. So I would say, you know, curiosity is important. Humility is important. Optimism is so important. Think about nothing great in this world was ever achieved by a pessimist. You have to be optimistic to go out and tackle problems. (laughs) And then the last piece is just perseverance. You know, you got to put the work in. And and I think about it in in that order because it's easy to say chop, right? C H O P. You got to be curious. You got to be humble. You got to be optimistic. And you got to put that work in every day. And I think that's what's probably defined me since I was a kid. It's defined me and sort of everything I've done on the professional side. And 
I'm still curious about new things, new things today. So I think, uh, you know, that's probably the thing that makes me who I am and makes me tick. So you got that sweater that has that string hanging out. You start pulling on it. Next thing you know, you have a tank top. You just keep on pulling right. on it because of that curiosity. Exactly. <laughs> See where it leads they you. They say curiosity kills Well, that the just cat. drives me right I into I think it's good. I think curiosity. <laughs> well, the cat has nine lives, right. so let's yeah, not yeah. forget no, about that, exactly. right? You got to keep on moving forward. And that's that perseverance that you were talking about as well. Yeah. So that goes into that driving passion what, what's that driving passion that led you to doing what you do now? You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I played football when I was a kid for 12 years, and, and I coached football as an adult. And it's an interesting sport because I think about more, more than any other sport. There's a lot of great sports out there. But you think about, I think in football, particularly in youth football, there is such a direct correlation between teamwork and effort and success more so than, you know, if you're playing basketball and you have the height, that's a big advantage. If you can hit a baseball, that's one thing, but there's so much that you learn in that sort of teamwork and effort and how much that can lead to success playing football. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to, you know, I played for 12 years and I played on a state championship team. We won back-to-back state championships. We were ranked in the top 10 in the country it was a great experience, but more than anything that I learned was that, look, if you work as a team and you really put the effort in, you can do amazing things. And that's really sort of translated into the rest of my life. And, you know, I think about it, if you're running, you know, playing football and, and, and 10 players do their job and one player doesn't, it might be a three, three yard loss. All 11 players do their job. It could be a touchdown. So, you know, that was something that was impressed upon me at a very early age. I started playing when I was five. And I've taken that sort of mentality throughout everything that I've done on the on the professional level as well. And I have to ask, what position did you play? So I, I was defensive back. I, I was I was the smallest kid in, in our entire league. Maybe there's a lesson in that too. But uh, I was a defensive back and a running back. But at the end, on our on our back to back state championship teams, that team that was that was ranked uh, you know ten in the country, I, I was a defensive back. Wonderful. Wonderful. Appreciate sharing that. And I, I do want to transition because you, you work with a lot of business owners and they themselves are part of the bigger team, right? Yep. They may have to be the coach of the team, but they're part of that bigger team. But then there's that transitioning of the business. And I know you've helped business uh, owners with this. Can you share a story of how you helped the business owner with their own transition plan? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. And I, I tell people this all the time. I tell entrepreneurs today, you are this is the best time to be an entrepreneur probably in the history of the U.S. Because you think about businesses, the, the heart of this country, the backbone of this country is small businesses and entrepreneurs. And a lot of those are family-founded businesses. And we've seen this story happen over and over again. A lot of times, if that second generation or that third generation doesn't want to take over the family business, there isn't always a transition for that. But what's happened really over the past 30 years is different than when I got into the business. You know, when I got into into the business 30 years ago, the stock market was almost the entire investable universe. And, you know, private markets were a small piece of it. Now there's a huge ecosystem within private markets. And what that means is there's a whole system and there's a whole network of people that now go and buy private businesses. So if you're an entrepreneur you used to have to think about how do I grow my business? How do I sell my business? And you kind of had to look at your, your, your inner network. And now you've got hundreds thousands of firms that specialize in 
companies with $100 million in revenue, companies with $50 million in revenue, companies as small as $10 million in revenue. And so we were working with a business owner, you know, just in the, in, in the last month in the Kansas City area. They run a manufacturing company. They, they purchased it about 10 years ago. They've grown the business from $15 million in revenue to $60 million in revenue. They're looking at a transition where they want to grow that business. And again, this was something that historically they would have said, well, you know, can my kids take over this business? Do I have friends that can take over this business? Do I hire a business broker? And they didn't realize there's a whole ecosystem in private equity that are looking exactly for those businesses that are growing their top line, that have a differentiated product and service, that are looking for some capital that can help them grow where they can still retain a stake. It's not a binary outcome where you're either going to run the business or you're going to sell it. You can stay on. You can keep a stake. And so I just think you know one of the most exciting things for entrepreneurs today is there's such a bigger market for their business, whether they want to sell it outright whether they just need a growth partner or whether they want to stay on and retain a stake but take some chips off the table. And and we've been helping a lot of business owners do that over the past several years. Yeah. So a business owner that is going through that process, um, how many years in advance do you think it makes sense for them to have that conversation before they start to transition their business? Because I can imagine that's not done overnight yep. and anything worth doing is not done overnight. Right. Yep. So is, do you have any guidance to when they should start to consider starting that process? Yeah. I mean, I guess the question is now and, and, or the answer is now, right? Because and the thing is, you know, we, yeah. <laughs> we work with, um, you know, a lot of businesses and one of the things that we, that we introduce in a lot of those businesses is succession planning and succession planning is not something people want to think about right because this business is their it's it's their it's their their heart and soul their blood their sweat and their tears you know my my wife jokes that that you know the company that I'm running is like our third kid and the one that you know she thinks is, is, is the most high maintenance but this is like it's like a baby right to, to to everybody and nobody wants to think about succession no one wants to think about transition but you have to start thinking about it before you need it because you start thinking about what are the elements that I want to have in place. And a lot of times, you know, whenever we're thinking about a business, the three factors people should be thinking about is, is this transition, will it be good for my customers? Will it be good for my employees? Will it be good for the ownership group? And you really want to be able to satisfy all three of those. And it takes a long time to figure out what exactly that next step looks like. And that might change over time. You know, we talk to a lot of business owners that might be in their 50s and they say, you know what, I'm looking to to transition the business. I need some help. They bring in some help and they realize, oh, wait a minute, this is a lot more fun now that I've got help. I could do this for another 10 or 15 or 20 years. So mm-hmm. start that process yeah. early. Think about the stakeholders, your employees, your customers, your, your, your owners, your equity owners in the business and start that process. And I think the more that you learn, the more you realize that, it, like I said earlier, it's not this binary outcome. You might have a series of things you can do that can help you transition to that next level. <clears throat> you know, you touched on this earlier, Jeremy, and, and I just want to put some numbers to this because we have seen that contraction in the public markets over the last, mm-hmm. uh, let's say, two decades. You know, from 1996, there were 7,322 public li- publicly listed companies versus 3,643 back in 2020 and 2019. But also the average market cap jumped from 1.7 billion to 10.3 billion during that same time yep. frame. So with this contraction that's going on in this public market, how do you see private markets and real assets fit into a portfolio construction? 
And, and please also, please touch on the risk spectrum within private yeah. markets that people really need to know. Yeah, you know, yeah. you bring up a great point. You know, you know, 1996 was when I got on the business. And again, it, the, the investable universe was stocks. You had large stocks, mid-company stocks, and small company stocks. Private markets were less than 1% of the investable universe in 1996. You know, 10 years ago, they were 3%. Today, it's more than 10%. It's on its way to 15 or 20%. But the number that I think people find most staggering is you mentioned the number of public companies. It's gone from over 7,000 to 3,000 and change. There are 130,000 private businesses in the U.S. that are investable. There are 30,000 private companies that have more than 100 employees. And so you think about this, the opportunity set. And so what's happened is people have said, look, there's 3,000 public companies. But think about all the companies that we know you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, those are six companies that are a trillion dollars or more in market cap. So even mm-hmm. though there's 3,000 public companies, most people's portfolios are dominated not by 3,000 companies, not by 1,000 companies. The S&P 500 is 80% of the capitalization in the U.S. So we're really talking about 30, 50, 100 companies that are sort of driving people's portfolios. When you got 30,000 private businesses with more than 100 employees. These are real businesses with real revenue and real growth. And we just think there's so many levers that a smaller business can pull as it becomes that big business. We always ask ourselves, once a company's gone public, yes, it can still grow. But what are the different things that, that they did along the way? I, I wanted to invest in that company before it went public and all those growth factors. So what we find is that now that the, that the private markets have become more accessible to a wider set of investors, people are finding a lot of value because there's just so many more shots on goal. With 30,000 private companies of scale, there are companies that may not be subject to the same ups and downs of what's happening to the, you know, the Facebooks and the Apples and the Microsofts of the world. You know, and this is something that um, I, I come across from time to time where we have clients that are looking to diversify but are not too interested in the bond market right now, right. right? And the public market was frothy for a while with stock valuations pulling yeah. back so far this year. You know, so I'm looking for insight on valuations on the private yeah. markets. Like, how are you adjusting the portfolio to address address that within the private market? Yeah. So, you know, what's really interesting, Jason, you bring up a great point because a lot of folks have said, hey, look, man, publics are down 20% so far in 2022 and the bond market's down 10%. And private markets have held up pretty well. You know, what, what's happening? And what's so interesting about the private markets, you know, there's, there's a saying in the public markets that the stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine in the long term. And right now that voting machine is saying, hey, we think stocks, you know, should be, should be going down because we're worried about the future. Well, look, for better or for worse, private markets are not based on what people on TV think or pundits or what, you know, anyone's going to vote with their feet one day or the next day, a private company is worth what a willing participant is going to pay for that company in an arm's length transaction. And what you don't see in the private markets is these massive swings up or down. So in 2021, when the public market was getting frothy and you were seeing price to earnings multiples go from 16 to 18 to 20 to 22 to 24 times on the S&P 500, what you didn't see was you saw that, look, private market companies trade in a range. And yes, generically over the past 20 years, they've gone up. But we look at software companies and we say, look, for the past 25 years, high quality software companies have traded for seven to nine times revenue. And that's, that's a 25-year number. 
and maybe in a frothy market that goes to 10 or 11. But you just don't have those massive swings because unlike a stock where you might be going out and buying one one hundredth of the company, private markets, people are going out and they're buying a whole company. You're, you're not going to pay – you're not going to overpay 70, 80 percent when you're going to buy that entire company. So what you see in private markets is just much less volatility either in you know prices going up or prices going down. And it's because it's really what, what companies are worth today, not what people think they might be worth down the road. And so it's a combination of that lower volatility, but then also the fact that because you've got so many different companies doing so many different things, that you've got a lot of different opportunities to diversify in a challenging market. You know, we always focus on long-term investing as nothing worth building was built within a day, right? right? And with that, having a plan in place, if leverage gets too high, if growth slows and we head into a recession, we're all polar, we're all a part of our conversations we're having right now. So how do you see private markets helping navigate a tightening market? What's really interesting, Jason, you bring up a great point too, is that Private companies, it sounds counterintuitive, but can sometimes react a little bit quicker than public companies. And they also have a long-term focus. You know, one of the biggest issues, the reason why you're seeing so many companies go from from public to private is they didn't like the short-termerism that you have where you have these quarterly earnings calls with all the analysts and you have all these things that you're getting judged on on a short-term basis. In private equity, people talk about three to five three to five core initiatives that we're going to undertake over the next three to five years. Can you imagine if a public company said, hey, we have this plan for three to five years? In the public markets, people are thinking about three to five days, three to five months, not three to five years. So it's the combination of the long term, but also because the interests are so aligned, right? Let's say a private equity firm owns 70% of a family-owned business and the family owns the other 30%. They can react pretty quickly. Let's say the debt markets get really tight. Maybe they can free up cash in other ways. Maybe they can pivot and they're a smaller company. They can be a little more nimble. So I think the ability of private companies to react more quickly to a changing environment, the aligned interests and the longer term nature of their initiatives, I think can be can be a real benefit. And a lot of this conversation has been on the, the equity side. Uh, do you have any comments on the private debt side? Anything that uh, our listeners should be aware of on the private yeah, I mean, debt equation? What I would equation? just say is that you know it's similar to private equity in that, again, 25, 30 years ago, the private equity ecosystem was not a large part of the capital markets. It's a material, meaningful, fast-growing part of the capital markets today. Same thing on the private debt market. You've now got a trillion dollars in private debt. And what that also means is that companies – have a lot more levers they can pull if they're not looking for equity capital, but they're looking for debt. You know, Historically, it would say, okay, you either have to be of a certain size or you have to go to banks. A lot of non-bank lenders now, a lot of smaller companies can now get financing. Maybe they don't want to give up an equity stake, but they need some growth capital. I just think there's so many more opportunities for entrepreneurs today to have a much more flexible part of the capital structure. Wonderful. And, uh, and uh, here's a question I Love asking. Okay, Jeremy. All right. If you could leave an impression with our listeners on creating wealth, what would that impression be? So I would say, God, that's a great one. But, you know, I would say (laughs) bet on yourself, you know, be curious, humble, optimistic, and persevere. So, you know, chop and learn by doing, 
right? I mean, I think that, you know, there, there, there's a lot of times people will sort of wait to get the perfect opportunity. We always say, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. Go out there, learn by doing, bet on yourself. And if you can be curious, humble, optimistic, and persevere, there's a great market out there for entrepreneurs today. Jamie, okay, if you're if you're 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 chopping your way through the forest of life, yeah. be pers- be perseverance. Get through it, right? Keep it going. Yep. Stay humble, optimistic. Be consistent, right? I love everything that you were talking about. This was absolutely awesome, Jeremy. I hope you had as much fun as I did today speaking with you. I did. Thanks. All right. Good. I was going to say, right. It was uh, just an absolute pleasure and honor speaking with you today. And I'm very much appreciate your insights on your experiences and thoughts around building wealth. Listeners, that was Jeremy Hild, CFA Managing Director at Bow River Capital. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you.